the metaverse will have all kinds of practical, important business implications. And the use of AR, VR, digital twins, and increasing instrumentation of various assets will all come together to create a more robust capability for delivering things like telehealth services. Budget overruns, brick devices, data breaches, building connected products is hard. Welcome to Over the Air, sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. I'm your host, Ryan Prosser. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Vary, and today we're joined by Don Deloach, Managing Partner and Co-Founder at Rocket Wagon. We're going to be talking about why IoT has been so slow to evolve. Don, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Don, we're going to be talking about Rocket Wagon a little bit, but I'm going to be picking your brain a lot. For those that don't know, give us a little bit on Rocket Wagon and a little bit on Don. Sure. I've been running small venture-backed companies for over 20 years. For the last 12 years of my life, IoT has been my work and my hobby in terms of it's you know been what I did for my day job, but I also have all kinds of outside interests that have evolved around that. That's led me to convergence of two passions, one of which is entrepreneurism and the other is, is IoT. But as we will explore, IoT in the context of where it's going, which I think is broader than just IoT as we think about it. So think of cyber-physical transformation, or even in the broadest terms, everything to do with the connection to the hyper-connected world. So Rocket Wagon Venture Studios is really a, a framework for multiple venture studios that come under the umbrella of that progression to the hyper-connected world with various uh, specific domains. The first one we're standing up is Smart City Works Venture Studio in DC, and it's focused on innovation and infrastructure in the built world. All of them have an ESG focus as well. And the whole goal of a venture studio is to take companies that are at the launch point where they have an MVP and a couple of customers, but help them get to scalable, repeatable commercialization by wrapping a team of experienced entrepreneurs around them. So think of it as kind of a residency program for startups to de-risk them and accelerate their path to either an exit or a, a subsequent financing. Fascinating. The idea of venture studios is really interesting to me. And I, you know, for those that have been following your career for a while, you're kind of a big deal in the space. You wrote a book about six years ago called The Future of IoT. One of the questions I have for you is, you know, that was six years ago. Are we in that future now? And the topic of this episode is why has IoT been so slow to evolve six years later? Are we where you thought we would be? Where are we relative to what you wrote about in 2017? Yeah, I probably should answer that by being in full disclosure. I started writing the book in 2014. So it was based on a thesis that was developed close to 10 years ago. And it was all about the importance of architecture and how realizing the true benefits of IoT came from a thoughtful, holistic process with a focus on the data. And, and most of the focus of the book, and Emil and I, and Wild to some extent, really spent a lot of time focusing on the, the role of data in the context of a holistic architecture. So are we there yet? Well, my view was the book should have largely been obsolete the day we published it. 
sadly, it is as relevant today almost as it was at that point. Some of the communication references are a little dated, but overall, conceptually, it is as important today as it ever has been. There is still a fair amount of path in front of us to get to where we really need to be. We're never really where we need to be because things keep changing. But I would say this much, whereas we're not anywhere near where I thought we would be by now, we're definitely making progress. And people are starting to think more in terms of a holistic architecture. They're starting to think more in terms of data, the role of data, the governance of the data, the privatization, the security, the various elements that need to be baked into the overall architecture. So we're, we're getting there. We're still not there. One of the things that that we hear a lot is, you know, hey, we're only in the third inning of IoT. This is just the first inning of IoT. This is XYZ inning. And I say, listen, I love the baseball analogy because it feels like this is taking forever and it's never going to end. So, you know, baseball, of course, being the slowest sport. I love baseball. Please don't write me hate mail. I am a lifelong baseball fan, but it is not a fast game. Why is it taking so long for this to play out? You know, some of these things feel like they're taking decades when it doesn't feel like they needed to. What's your take on this? A couple of things. Sometimes I wonder whether we populated the field with baseball players and in the third or fourth inning realized we were actually supposed to be playing hockey. And so we didn't even have the right players. But that's probably an overstatement. I think One of the main reasons is that back in the early days of IoT, so when IBM was doing the Smarter Planet and Ericsson had the Connected Society and Cisco had the Internet of Everything, and there were all these marketing slogans and all kinds of, my mom's building a smarter planet or whatever. It it was just so much hype. And if you went to Mobile World Congress in 2011 and then 2012 and then 2013, you would have seen progressively the number of vendors there, and the amount of hype associated with IoT growing dramatically. And as a function of that, people were rushing to IoT-enable their products. And unfortunately, that took the form of product providers that may have been providing you know, smart products, if you will, something with a microcontroller on it or something, to smart connected products. You can refer back to the article that Michael Porter and Jim Peppelman wrote in 2014 in the Harvard Business Review about the progression of this market. And they actually outlined very clearly products to smart products, to smart connected products, to product systems, to systems of systems. Well, the, the smart connected product was this IoT, you know, just exploding, super cool market. And everybody's trying to IoT enable the products. But in order to do that and do it quickly, the whole approach was I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a sensor on a product and I'm going to find a way to take that message and shoot it into a consuming cloud that I, as the product owner, run. And you know that's fundamentally the creation of the data is tied to the consumption of the data. So it's fundamentally like a peer-to-peer architecture. And that's absolutely fine if and only if we're in 1969 with a mainframe computer. But when it comes to thinking about it more thoughtfully, that doesn't make any sense at all. Because first of all, you're going to want to contextualize all the data. So if you've got 15 different devices that are all relevant to one another and and creating data, it's not okay to treat each data stream as a silo. You have to be able to, to contextualize it. You want to be able to cleanse it and enrich it. And you're going to get this baseline atomic data set that has been curated 
which will then serve as a basis for creating derived data and enriching the data set further, but also looking at that data in the context of who should be seeing it. And any one set of data might be delivered in 17 different forms to 17 different constituents, all of which are tied back to the same atomic data that was created, but that temperature reading on the low-fat fryer ends up at you know, Burger King or McDonald's, it ends up at, at Whirlpool or Frymaster, it ends up at the FDA. It's all about the separating the creation of the data from the consumption of the data. And for what it's worth, this also is not a new concept. Edward Codd pioneered uh, relational databases in 1970, and by 74, the IBM System R team was pushing you know, the first real relational databases out into the market. So this is not, leveraging the utility value of the data is not a new concept. And it's so incredibly important for IoT, but in the rush to get those IoT-enabled products into the market, we kind of missed the bigger picture of getting the architecture right so that you can make the best use of that data that you're creating. One of the things that we've heard a lot on the show, and you know, we have confetti drop down anytime somebody says it, you haven't said it yet today, but digital twins is the kind of the buzz phrase of the year. What is your view on what we're going to be talking about next year? You know, in 2023, what is the thing that you think, listen, this is, we're, we're not quite there yet, but I can see it just around the corner. This is the thing for 2023 that everyone's going to be talking about. Well, all right. <laughs> so all of this, by the way, when you say digital twins, you know, the concept of the year, my first thought was, which year are we talking about? Uh, you know, digital twins have been around for a while, and there are people like, so Rob, my fr- good friend, Rob Tiffany, it had been at Microsoft and then Hitachi Lumada and then Ericsson. And, and you know, Rob is a much bigger name in IoT than I'll ever be. And he knows a hundred times. Friend of the show. Yeah, he, he, he's awesome. So he was creating you know, avatars and, and associated digital twins in a way that was unbelievably compelling several years ago. And I, I only say this to say it's the combinatorial elements of technology um, being used in different ways that increases the pace and, and increases the outcomes and capabilities that we see year over year. There's a great book by uh, McAfee and, and Bryn Jolfson a long time ago called The Second Machine Age that talked about this very concept. So when you talk about digital twins today and where are we going to be tomorrow and what's going to be the big hype for tomorrow, I would say part of the big hype for tomorrow will include you know, digital twins and some of these technologies combined with new technologies. So let me, let me dive just a little bit deeper. So we hear about the metaverse. And, and like right now, you know, the metaverse has this connotation of uh, you know, gamers. And you know, this is, we're playing at this super cool technology, but you know, we're going to go back to work now. But that's a mistake. The metaverse will have all kinds of practical, important business implications. And the use of AR, VR, digital twins, and increasing instrumentation of various assets will all come together to create a more robust capability for delivering things like telehealth services or aging in place or the creation of, so I, there's a company that we work with, and I'll just give a quick plug to them called Acular. They're out, out of Europe. And they basically will take a building information management, a BIM model, and they'll create a virtual representation of a building at the very beginning or 30% through the project or what it's supposed to look like at the end. 
up to and including the ability to walk through the building that doesn't really exist yet to see what it's going to look like. It's then used for things like dialogue with contractors and getting everybody on the same page, which reduces your cost, which reduces your errors, which reduces your timeframes. All of these technologies are going to have so many uses, but it's the combination of the whole idea of the metaverse, the component technologies like uh, MR and uh, AR and the use of digital twins all coming together. And then when you back this into IoT, IoT is probably the most important piece of the metaverse because the IoT gives you the data and the texture to begin to populate what that metaverse looks like in a more and more reality-based environment. So that was probably a longer answer than you wanted, but it's my answer. Well, I love it. The slot was, give me the term for next year. You have three words, go. And you're like, no, 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 hang on. This is a much bigger question. Uh, That's my failing. I love the Rob Tiffany call out. Huge fan of the show, uh, friend of the show. But I often say, you know, every time somebody says digital twins, Rob Tiffany gets paid a nickel. You know, this is <laughs> this has been his thing for for a long time. What do you? One of the things that you we've heard a couple of times today is a term that I'm not sure everyone would be very familiar with. This cyber physical transformation. This is a term that if digital twins is kind of Rob Tiffany's thing. This is kind of Dawn's thing. For folks at home, cyber-physical transformation, what does that mean and and what are we going to be seeing in this area in the next couple of years? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, cyber-physical wouldn't be Dawn's thing. It would be, more than anything, it would be Chris Resendez at Spherical Analytics, a good friend and a very, very forward thinker. So when you think of cybersecurity, right, what's the cyber part of it? It's the digital part, right? It's not like concrete security, it's the digital world. And so cyber physical is really the union between the digital world and the physical world. And so so cyber physical transformation is in a nutshell, think of it like this. Think of everything IoT plus the adjacent technologies that will accompany IoT as we move towards a hyper-connected world. So what are the communication elements? What are the security elements? Things like AR, VR, drones, 3D printing, AI and machine learning, these are all collectively worked together to give us greater and greater capabilities, as well as greater and greater responsibilities, by the way, as we move to this hyper-connected world. So when I say cyber-physical transformation, I'm talking about taking a world that is increasingly instrumented and using those capabilities to develop transformative systems that allow us to be better stewards of the environment, uh, better champions of all people where data becomes the equalizer instead of past bias that may have been cultivated over hundreds of years. It is the enabling technology that will allow us to prosper in the future. So that's what I mean when I say cyber-physical transformation. One of the things we haven't talked about much today is rocket wagon. You know, normally we have a guest on the show and the guest and the company are inextricably linked because of your background, you're you're kind of a standalone expert. But talk to us a little bit about Rocket Wagon. What are we going to be seeing in 2023 and beyond? Yeah. Okay. Well thanks for asking. I typically not to not I try not to turn anything like this into a a sales promo. Uh, as a side note, I've, I've run lots of conferences, and if anybody ever stands up and starts to go into a sales pitch about their product, they're, they're never asked back. 
Strongly agree. But since you asked, let me just keep this at a high level. So our whole goal is to help promising startups focused on various elements of cyber-physical transformation get to scalable, repeatable commercialization. And actually, I was brought into the whole world of Venture Studios by a friend of mine who was on the Midwest IoT Council uh, board when my good friend Brenna Berman and I were, were running that. And he pulled me aside and asked me if I had ever heard of a Venture Studio. And I said, nope, I, I haven't. And he said, well, you've heard of incubators, right? Startup incubators? I said, yeah. And he said, you've heard of startup accelerators? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, it's neither of those. I'm like, okay, Phil, this is really helpful. Thanks. He said, but it is a team of experienced entrepreneurs that wrap around a small number of companies on a fractional basis in various roles, but working alongside them, not as mentors that are doing didactic learning, but actual extensions of their team to get them from the launch point to either a series A or an outright M&A transaction. And it's kind of like a residency for surgeons where you have people who are accomplished at what they're doing, working alongside people who don't have that experience. And it turns out, for example, a 60-year-old founder is three times more likely to be successful than a 30-year-old founder. It turns out experience matters. And while 90% of startups fail, about 70% fail in that execution phase. And it's largely because they shoot themselves in the foot inadvertently. They hire the wrong people because they don't have the right hiring practices. They don't manage their cash right. They don't get their product market fit right. And even that's something that's interesting because everybody's like, well, it's, you got to get product market fit, right? You got to, you know, we don't get product market fit right. But people should be asking, well, why don't we get it right? What is it that happens that makes so many people not do it? And generally, it's a function of an imbalance between your key person that's driving sales, the VP of sales, chief revenue officer, whatever, and your key people, the key person that's driving the technology side, the CPO or the CTO. And one of those is generally the alpha dog. And so you either have somebody saying, well, you know, we're going to get a contract with FedEx, so I don't care what the roadmap says. Or you get the other side of the coin saying, you know, the person, the, the chief product officer thinks they're Steve Jobs, and they say, well, they're going to get what I tell them to get because I know better than anybody. Neither one of those situations is healthy, but it happens all the time. And so our goal is to work with these startups and help the founders through proven methods and best practices and people who have been there and done that, try to help them make sure that they take the appropriate amount of risk, that they have the right practices for hiring additional executives, that they manage their cash right, that they get their product market fit right. All the things that kill companies along the way that would otherwise be promising companies, but they, they drive their car off the road because they just don't know any better. And so I'm passionate about that combination between cyber-physical and entrepreneurism. And my goal is to just make Rocket Wagon the gold standard for helping these companies get to a successful point in their trajectory. You covered a lot of ground there. I, I, we talk a lot about product market fit on the show. You know, I often say, if you have product market fit, nothing else matters. If you don't have product market fit, nothing else matters. And to have it paired up, you know, you kind of you were brief, but you were talking about like also cash management and some of the blocking and tackling of running a business, uh, which I think has been a total lost art in technology in the last 20 years. People don't think as much about that. But you look at what kills technology companies in the early stages, and it's they either run out of cash or they never achieve product market fit, or often it's they run out of cash while trying to achieve product market fit, some combination of the two. And product market fit 
you know, for longtime listeners, they'll know I talk about this almost every episode. It is very hard, but there are, as you say, these proven methods. You know, this isn't magic pill territory. This is health and fitness territory. You know, there are known ways for a person to go from basically any fitness level that they're currently at to being a much healthier person, you know, and magic pill is not one of those avenues. It's hard work. It's eating right. It's an exercise routine. What, what are some of the things that you can share with the audience? Just give me, give us two or three quick hits, maybe aren't revolutionary, but you've, but a lot of the time they drive your, the companies that you're working with towards product market fit. Maybe it doesn't solve it for them, but helps them achieve some directional correctness. Uh, sure. Well, first of all, it really does start with the executive team that you hire, because if you allow for an imbalance, you are crippling yourself out of the gate. And so that, and that's the most toxic piece of the equation that usually hurts the product market fit. But it's more than that. In some ways, it's related to that. You have to have a culture that expects people to leave the hubris at the door. And that, that's product market fit, and it's also everything else. You know, in the technology business, you better get up every morning and approach your day thinking, I have something else to learn today. So when you, the, when you start walking in the door and thinking you know all there is to know, you're in the wrong business, and you're going to make bad mistakes. And so I think product market fit, in many ways, is hampered by people's unwillingness to listen to each other. Uh, meaning, you know, the product side and the go-to-market side listening to each other. But more than that, listening to your customers. You put your product out in the market and you need to have a, a very, very keen interest and associated process in place to get customer feedback and bake it into what you're doing. The other thing you, you better be doing, and almost no startups do this well, is you need to have a, a keen understanding of the competitive market too. When I help startups, one of the first things I'll do with the CEO is say, uh, hey, tell me, uh, you know, I love what you're doing. Tell me, uh, who else do you think is doing this like you and who, who do you see as your best competition? And, and I would say, and they don't realize that's actually more of a test than anything. I would say that like 80 to 90% of the time I hear, well, you know, Don, we've looked in the market. We just don't see anybody doing it like we are. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to go back to my office and I'm going to send you a list of 30 companies that are articulating what they're doing that is almost exactly the way you are. And if you'd like more, I'll go outside of our zip code and look for more. Like seriously. So the lack of awareness about the market is an issue and the lack of listening to your customers and then listening to each other in order to glean and distill this information in a way that allows you to make the adaptations to get to product market fit, which by the way, you never all, you never really get to it because it's always changing as you move forward in time, but you can deliver a product that is suitable for your market by taking some pretty basic steps that aren't always easy, but they will generally pay good dividends if you can go about it in a way like I'm talking about. Yeah. It's interesting. Product market fit is, they say about waterfront property in Hong Kong, that it is not a point in space, it is a point in time, because they're constantly creating more waterfront property in Hong Kong. And it product market fit is very similar. You know, this is not a point in space, it's a point in time. It's a point in time where your product fits the market, you know, like BlackBerry, who's using a BlackBerry now, you know, like, but at that time, 2000, 
five. This was revolutionary stuff. And uh, But I want to go back to your first point, and we'll go through this relatively quickly because we're running out of time, but you mentioned what I would characterize as balance on the executive team. You know, I, you didn't say balance, but it seemed like you were, you were alluding to. Sure. And I wanted to ask a follow-up. You often hear people say, nature abhors a vacuum. You hear this all the time. Nature abhors a vacuum. But what you don't hear as often, but seems just as true, is that nature really doesn't like imbalance either. You know, and you get too many wolves and too few deer, for example, that's really, really bad for the wolves for a season, you know, and then the next year, there's gonna be too many deer, too few wolves as things normalize. And it feels to me, you know, I see executive teams all the time at very, I mean, we dozens and dozens per year and you patterns emerge, you know, and one of the patterns, and I hear you, it sounded like I heard you saying it, I wanted to follow up, is a balanced team you know, where people have roughly an equal voice and say, and people are within themselves equal part talker and listener, so both able to convey and absorb information, incredibly important. And you see these teams that have this, uh, you know, one or two really outsized executives, and those don't, don't do as well. And it really doesn't matter where the imbalance is. is has this been your experience as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, that the imbalance that you get in teams is toxic and can be fatal. That's first and foremost the responsibility of the CEO. But the CEO and the executive team have to set the culture for the company because you can be doing a lot of things right in markets that are astoundingly good and still implode if you don't pay attention to these type of things. I mean, Look at the stuff that's been produced about WeWork or Uber. And I mean, granted, you know, they were covered to some extent, but they suffered huge blows because they had toxic environments that, you know, wasn't sustainable in that way. And I think that that's, uh, uh, those are more widely known illustrations of things that happen, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of times where you get these companies that, have the best of intentions, but you get this imbalance in terms of the team and you get, you get people talking about our side versus their side and, you know, it's counterproductive. And that is one of the, the primary responsibilities of the executive team and especially the CEO. And I would say more than anything, start by leading by example. You know, you get, that's why I say you, the biggest enemy of entrepreneurs is, is people confuse hubris with confidence. You want people that believe in what they're doing, passionately believe in what they're doing. But you also want people that are respectful enough and have an air of humility so they will listen to their employees, to their customers, to their partners, to their investors. Because all of these constituencies need to have a voice. And typically, you know, the more you listen and the more data you have, if you will, if you can if we can, you know, put this in the context of you're getting more data. The more data you have, the better decisions you can make. You just have to be willing to, A, absorb the data and then apply your mental capacity to using that to make better and better decisions. And to the extent that you can create that as an expectation for everybody on the team, you know, from in every role in the company, you want people who listen, who ask questions, who, you know, will, will bring forward enthusiastically, you know, bring, in, bring forward ideas but are also willing to listen to others' ideas. And, and, and then you have to act. 
you know, it's not necessarily a democracy by any stretch of the imagination, but respectful, thoughtful environments tend to go a lot further. So Don, follow on to that. You know, you've been in the space, you've got great cross visibility across IoT. Who are some companies in IoT that you think are doing good work that not enough folks are talking about? Yeah, I mean, I could probably sit here and talk about a lot, but let me speak to one or two in particular. There's a company out of Austin, Texas called Clearblade. And I've known that they've been around for a while. I want to say 2013, 2014, maybe earlier. And they were one of the early edge IoT platforms. And their architecture is very, I'm always attracted to architecture, especially when the data elements are very thoughtful. And I think they did a a really good job, but like all IoT companies almost in that period, you know, struggled for a, a pretty good period of time. And they started leaning more and more into specific domains. And so they started doing a lot in the industrial, but especially a lot in the rail space. And now, now they're doing exceptionally well. And like almost every major, you know, rail operator is using ClearBlade and their architecture is elegant, it's scalable, it works, it's proven. And the team, so Eric Simone, the CEO, I think is a great illustration of what we were just talking about in terms of he's confident and he'll bring ideas forward. And Aaron, the CTO, was the same way, but they listen and they're thoughtful about what they do. And they've created companies where you you can talk to their employees and you can just tell there's this underpinning of enthusiasm of people who like being a part of what they're doing. And since they started leaning more into the domain-specific side of things, they began to see traction where they otherwise struggled when it was all about the technology. And I think that that highlights a a bigger trend, which is people nowadays, people are so much more inclined to buy outcomes than they are technology. So it's not about this glorious underlying architecture. It's about how do I ensure that my rail crossings are safe? I'll give you another example. I'm actually, in, in full disclosure, I'm on the advisory board of this company I'm going to mention, but it's called MicroShare. And it's an interesting story. When I, uh, shortly after uh, we published the book in 2017, I got a call from this guy and he said, Hey, my name is Ron Rock. I'm the CEO of MicroShare. And my CTO, Charles Fumal, handed me your book and said, Read this. It's the best illustration of what we do of anything I've seen. And I thought, well, that's that's nice. Uh, okay, so tell me about it. And as I got to know what they were doing, their architecture was super elegant when it came to data governance, especially. But they too were they were moving along, but they weren't just like an overnight sensation. They've been around for probably about the same time as Clearblade, but they started leaning into outcomes and and the outcomes was it these super sophisticated on the surface outcomes? No, it was like bathroom management in airports, you know, where you press the smiley face or the the frowning face, you know, well, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes, but what they really wanted to do is help people, you know, reduce their cost, increase customer satisfaction, all the outcomes that you want. And they were delivering that and they put a veneer on top of the underlying very elegant architecture and started providing solutions that were outcome-based solutions built on top of the underpinnings of what they had been bringing forward all along. So they are almost a tip of the iceberg illustration in my mind of taking it the full length to say, we've got this incredible technology, but what it needs is the application veneer that makes it usable to people who don't understand or care about the underlying technology, but they want the outcomes that this technology can 
produce. And now MicroShare is doing fantastic. They've got all kinds of customer traction. What they're delivering works really well. And, and they would be an, a, a great example, as actually was ClearBlade, as a thoughtful architecture that can do great things if you understand how to create the underpinnings in the first place. And, and whereas you, you know, ClearBlade is doing all sorts of rail and industrial, and MicroShare is doing all kinds of real estate, and like they had COVID-related offerings and facilities uh, maintenance and management. So again, it's all about creating good companies with good people and employing the holistic architecture to get to where you go. One follow-up question, we're, we're over time, but it seemed relevant. So MicroShare sounds really cool. ClearBlade, of course, friend of the show. Um, love the call-outs there. You're talking about selling solutions, not technology. We had a guest on the show a few months ago who runs a venture capital fund. They gentleman by the name of Paul Willard, and he's talking about robotics as a service. You know, he's a big believer in robotics companies that sell a solution, not a robot. You know, for example, uh, uh, they have a company by the name of Zipline that delivers medication. They are selling medication delivery, not drones. Do you, in your view, is this something that you guys are looking at at Rocket Wagon? Is this something that you're advising entrepreneurs to think about is, hey, listen, you are in the solutions business, not in the technology business. Can you give us a quick answer on that one? It is. And there are, there are a lot of reasons why, but it is. One of the things is when you start to look at the balance sheet and the role of hardware and how investors look at investments, the financial profile of being able to morph what would look like something that was sold 10 years ago to something that might be sold 10 years from now, typically is a, from a directional standpoint, is, is something worth investigating. The X as a service approach certainly is gaining a lot of steam. There's a lot of value to be added, but it also, it plays right into the whole idea of people are buying outcomes. So when somebody does X as a service, it's because they want the outcomes of that service. They don't really care whether it's hardware, software, people, they just want capabilities, you know, on a recurring basis that they will pay for. So yes, I think absolutely that is a directionally something that a lot of entrepreneurs should be looking at. Well, I could go on like this all day with you, Don. We'd love to have you on the show again if you'd have us. Thanks so much for being on the show here today. Oh, my pleasure. I always enjoy these types of conversations and I appreciate being asked. That's great. Well, and thank you for listening. Join us next time as we meet with another IoT executive to talk about what went wrong on a journey that went right. Over the Air is brought to you by Very. To find out more about us, head over to verypossible.com and make sure to search for Over the Air and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. Don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Very, thanks for listening.